Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 258 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello. I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Sean. I forgot how to ask you. I forgot to ask you how to say your last name. <laughs> it's Claybo. Claybo. Cool. You want to give us a brief introduction, who you are, what you do? Sure, sure. My name is Sean Claybo. I'm a developer and developer manager at Washington State University. So my responsibilities here are with the Office of Research. So the systems that I work on are systems that track uh, grant proposals and awards and interface with the, uh, faculty members and researchers and even the compliance office because a lot of research has lost of um, compliance things that they have to adhere to for the things that they work on. So I've been developing professionally for about 20 years now. Uh, my typical stack is usually uh, SQL Server, ASP.NET, um, C-Sharp, Angular, TypeScript, all those types of things. So, But since I've been doing this for 20 years, I've seen lots of different things. So lots of experience there. Cool. We kind of brought you on to talk about this uh, development in a public institution um, I, I think a lot of times we hear about, um, you know, kind of private institutions or uh, businesses that maybe have people working on line of business apps, you know, so it's all internal stuff. Um, sounds like it's some of the same thing, but the concerns are a little bit different. Do, do you want to kind of explain how it's different from somebody who's just building maybe a public public facing product or an internal line of business app? Let's pause for a moment to talk about our sponsor, Taurus. Taurus is a new tool for managing and securing the secret information that allows your app to run. You know the stuff, passwords, API keys, database credentials, all the stuff that gives access to the private stuff that you don't want anybody to touch except for your application in specific ways. Taurus provides a convenient way to store all this information in the cloud, and they can't access it because it's encrypted with material derived from your password, which is never transmitted to their server. So it's secured from them, from everybody else, but accessible to you. This means only the servers, development machines, and applications you've allowed can access the information. So make secrets management headaches a thing of the past and check out Taurus today. You can find them at devchat.tv slash Taurus. That's devchat.tv slash T-O-R-U-S. public-facing product or an internal line of business app? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're still, a lot of the things that I work on are internal, but the customers that it might be exposed to can be quite different than what you think of with a private business or a regular business line of app application type of thing. Um, we don't have customers here. You know, we're not out here to make a profit or anything like that. So we're not looking at how many of these things do we sell or, you know, this app, this application that I build, you know, how is that going to help our store or anything like that? It's all about how can it affect um, the institution as a whole and improve it, make it more efficient, um, it, um, help the audience that the university is exposed to. Um, that's one of the big differences with um, being in a university, I've been university here. I've been in another university that was in Idaho for 17 years. So when I think of my audience, I'm thinking of prospective students, 
you know, students that are looking to come here, they're right in high school now. Um, we're looking at current students, so students that are here. But those students that are here, they could be undergrad, graduate. They could be an international student. So they all have different needs, even within the, the classification of a student. But then I also have to think about faculty, staff, alumni, um, researchers, and all sorts of different things, depending on the application that I'm working on at that time. You know, what's this audience? What's their needs? How is this going to meet their needs? And what are their expectations with these things? So what's their experience level? You know, it's all going to be something that I consider when I'm talking about my interface design and uh, user interaction. So in some ways, it sounds a little bit easier because if I'm working on a product, I actually have to go out into the world and find the people that are going to be using my app. And it seems like for you, at least, uh, I mean, the high school students who are going to be coming in, maybe you have to go hunt them down. But faculty, staff, students, I mean, most of the rest of those people are going to be on campus. Right, right. Except uh, at the campus here, we're actually, we have multiple campuses throughout the state. Oh, okay. So it's nice that we've got a video communication system between the different campuses throughout the state. We've got campuses in Spokane. We've got campuses in um, Everett on the east side of Washington. We've got Vancouver, Washington. So a number of different locations throughout the state that I sometimes have to interact with, but we do have ways to communicate and, and even meet once in a while because where I'm at here in Pullman is the main campus. So most of the people are located here. I was going to ask a question. Um, do the technology choices that you use, does that at all reflect like the developers that you have working on things? Because I'm wondering, do you have like students doing internships? So do you ever need to choose different stacks that would be easier for onboarding newer developers? Um, I haven't worked with student developers too much. Um, usually their time is pretty well soaked up with classes and studying and you know going out at night and <laughs> doing the things with their friends and things like that. Um, so I haven't worked with too many actual developers here. And it would kind of be tough because they're they're typically here for such a short period of time. And to keep them around and be able to maintain the things that they work on and pass that on to maybe the next student would be um, pretty challenging. Yeah, definitely. I guess that's why I was thinking if that was a thing, I was curious to talk about it. But Now, I do have sometimes the students that are working in like computer science degree or business degree, they'll come in and they'll, they'll, they'll talk to me and interview me and ask me about, you know, what I do on a day-to-day -day basis and ask, uh, look for some tips and tricks of what, the, what they should do as they then graduate and go out and look for jobs so I can help them in that way. And that's really, that's really fun to do. So I don't know how many people who listen to this show know this, but my first IT job, I was actually um, working in a data center at the university I was attending. And so we would troubleshoot network and server issues. And then I moved up to systems administrator uh, role. And I know that, um, and I'm sure it's different from university to university and stuff, but uh, I'm curious, like, what, what does the allocation and, uh, you know, technology decisions, you know, how do those get made in your situation? Because um, some of those decisions, it seemed like were at the discretion of whoever was closest to the 
problem, and others depended a lot on the administration and the decisions made there and what kinds of deals they could work out and what kind of enterprise software they could get and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, most of the decisions are kind of local to the department level. Um, because the university is really kind of a very diversified, decentralized type of organization, especially when it comes to IT especially, and, and development, that each department and their set of developers can kind of pick and choose their own stack to work on. There is a central IT that handles usually kind of the common good type of applications and the central applications for like uh, um, the central CRM or for student um, grades and those types of things. But then each department will have their own separate IT staff and IT needs. And then those departments can pick and choose what they want to do. Like in my department, we're using SQL Server, .NET stuff, Angular. But other departments um, in Central, like our CMS is all WordPress. So they're doing PHP and those types of things. Um, we'll even have different stacks as far as you know, somebody's using Hyper-V for their virtual management. Other people are using VMware. So it, it really kind of falls to the department and those IT staff to figure out what works best for them. Yeah, that makes sense. You, you kind of want to walk us through your typical day or week. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that that might be interesting just to kind of hear a different perspective on what it's like to work someplace like a university. Um, I mean, my typical day uh, is working on like the project that I'm working on now. I've actually been working on it for about six months. And it's really just a small sub-segment of the overall application that I work with. And that's the, um, the grant information system for proposals and awards and compliance. And what I'm working on right now is converting some of the old PDF-based forms that the compliance office was using into an online form and work, uh, workflow type of system for them to use. So I will meet with them on a regular basis. And that kind of gets to one of the other differences, I think, between the public institution and maybe some of the, the private institutions is that the people that I'm working with that are the stakeholders, the ones that are saying this is what we need, they don't really have much IT experience. And they've never designed a system before. So it leads to me being the one that has to translate what their business needs are, what their business business vocabulary is into something that can be really you know, honed down to, okay, this is what you need on a screen, and this is the flow of data that you need um, and the process. So I have to translate their vocabulary. Like the other day, I was working with somebody, and they said, um, you want to add a box here. Well, typically, I say, oh, a box, that means they probably need a text box or some sort of input. Well, I have to may remember to keep on asking questions and I found out that, no, they really meant a tab. Well, mm. a tab was just shaped like a box. They called it a box. <laughs> so, so there's some extra steps there that I think a developer has to do because we don't. I don't have a, somebody between me and the per person I'm working with for the department. I don't have a program manager or a business uh, analyst to kind of be that middleman between the business process and the IT side of things. I'm exposed on a daily basis directly with the people that are going to be using the program that I'm building. 
So I'm also wondering then, because you're talking about systems that manage things like grants and uh, stuff like that. And I mean, that that's kind of a major source of revenue sometimes for the universities, or at least for the projects that some of these professors are working on. And I'm also sure that there are some regulatory and other concerns that go into that. Um, you know, how is that different from somebody who's just trying to build something that somebody else will pay to buy into? Um, in the system I'm working with now, I've got to be aware of all the different um, regulations that apply to a public institution. I've got to think about accessibility concerns, you know, with uh, Section 508, which is, you know, making sure that you've got to have all your non-text elements have an alternative for somebody that's going to use a screen reader. Um, I have to make sure that my use of color is very selective. It can't be something that you can't tell information just by color only. There has to be some other sort of a, a text to go along with it or some something, an alternative image on things to make sure that, that they can't do it just by color. So I've got to think about all of those things. Some part of the system that I work with is also got to be HIPAA compliant because it does have some health sensitive information. And then the students themselves, all of their information is very closely um, regulated um, with a, a regulation that's called FERPA, stands for the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act. So to make sure that nobody that should not be getting access to any student information has that access. So I've got to make sure all layers of my applications that I built with really have that security in them so that I'm not exposing any data um, to people that shouldn't be authorized to get it. Is the accessibility mandated by law? Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah, especially the public-facing stuff. Internal stuff, not so much, much unless you have an employee that needs to use it that has some sort of a, a need for an accessible type of interface. Well, like when I was writing some of the content management systems that I worked with before, I had to make sure that it was really doing a, a good check to make sure that there were all tags on images. You know, if you had a PDF link on a page, it had to have a link to Adobe Reader because anytime you have something that's going to require a plugin, it also requires that you have a link to software that can, you know, view that plugin. Mm -hmm. So you really got to keep those in mind, especially if it's a, something that the public can get to. So I actually have another question based on what we were just talking about. So I used to work for a company called Quali that does a lot of stuff for higher ed. So what are the decision, like what led to your decision to build and maintain all of this yourself versus going through like an option like that where um, you purchase the like enrollment system or something like that from another company? Right. It comes down to what the need, the specific needs are. We do have a lot of things that are a package type of software, you know, like with the, the central IT using WordPress as their CMS. You know, they've got WordPress, but then they also, you know, do some customized development for that. Our student system um, is a PeopleSoft type based system. So we do have a lot of package software and it really comes down to that department and how they want to spend their money. Do they want something that's very specialized to what their needs are? Or is there something out there in the marketplace that if they put that money towards it, will work off the shelf with not, leading, not needing a whole lot of customization? Because 
you buy something off shelf that needs a whole lot of customization, you might end up spending more than if you would have built it from scratch. Yep. The system, yep. The system that I'm working on right now, I kind of took over. So it was already built from scratch over time, over the past probably 10 years. And I've done that quite often um, in my positions, not only here, but the other university I worked at, um, by doing an incremental approach. Start something small and then see how people accept it and start using it. Uh, like we had a homegrown CMS for a while, and that was because everybody was using front page, which you know they really didn't like, and they had to install it and use that interface. So I said, there's got to be something that's going to be much easier for these people to use that really don't have HTML experience or anything like that. So I just made something that just was really simple, rich text editor, so they could place content on a web page within a browser without installing anything. And then everybody really liked it. So they said, we don't want French page anymore. We're just going to use this. And then as their needs and their requests built, then every year, more features of that system were added on until it really became a full-blown content management system. So speaking of some of these projects that you've built, um, what's the what's the general life cycle of some of this software? Because I can imagine that if something's working, I mean, the university could keep it around for a long time. I remember in particular at, at the university I attended, um, I mean, some of the applications they had had them for years and years. I don't even know how long. And then others, you know, had been newer acquisitions as things had come up and they needed to solve those problems. Yeah, there's usually some software applications that have been around here for 30 years. You know, one of the main systems that they have for um, payroll and HR and things like that right now has been based off of a mainframe type of system. So and that's still kind of around here. They're currently in the process of getting a commercial package to replace that. Um, but yeah, things around here can be here for, you got to think, 10, 20 years easily. So when I'm developing my applications, I'm really thinking about um, maintenance down the line. You know, I plan on it being here for, for a while, but eventually I'll lead and I want to make sure that the code that I'm leaving is something that's going to make sense and is clean for the next developer that'll come on. You know, we typically work in small teams. You know, sometimes I worked on teams from from myself up to as many as five people. Um, and but the total number of developers with the university is probably ten times that at least, because of each department having their own team that might work on different things. So then how do you approach that? How do you build apps that are supposed to last 20 years? Um, I just try to keep um, really good principles. You know, I, I think solid, but, you know, solid to reach, you know, solid, pure solid is really, really tough. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at making sure that I'm self-documenting code. So I don't, Put a lot of long comments in there to explain the code. I'm making sure that I've, I'm keeping all of my methods really short, using good names for variables, using good names for methods, making sure that I, when I go out and choose 
uh, a technology to use, like when I chose to start implementing Angular into the, into my application, I made sure that this looked real, like something that was really going to be around for a while. So with SQL Server, been around for a long time. So a lot of people know it. Um, .NET, SP.NET, a lot of people know it, been around for a long time. So it's going to be real stable. And it can, it's going to be somebody easy to find somebody that can come on with at least a base knowledge to take it over. That's interesting because it feels like a lot of companies are kind of rushing to the next interesting or popular thing. And it seems like that's not a decision you, you make, at least not lightly, because, yeah, I mean, the maintainability of the, the system over 20 years, I mean, who knows if you're going to be able to find somebody who can do Haskell in 20 years or whatever. Right. Um, we still have some... Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremoteconf.com. Haskell in 20 years or whatever. Right. Um, we still have some legacy things in my department that's classic ASP. I know classic ASP, so I can still work on them. But, you know, if we find somebody new, they might know, not know it. Um, but I'm really conscious about any packages that I add to my application. You know, how stable it is. Is it is it something that I should develop my own? So I'm not at, at risk with that other person, you know, stopping development, um, especially if it's a small little one-off type of project. So I'm really looking to make sure that the things are going to be around and stable for a while. So I actually went to a jewelry store once and had this conversation with the owner, and he was talking about how they did their software. Uh, 20 years ago and he he built part of it and now it runs on some sort of like mainframe terminal emulator but they really like it because it's really simple to memorize what they need to do so uh, if you're at the main menu you hit three takes you to a sub menu two takes you to a sub menu five takes you to a sub menu and so a lot of the employees have all the codes memorized so if somebody comes in and they're like i need an exchange or i need to do this or size or whatever they just know the code for what it is and da 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 da, da. and it seems as we build out like these more advanced systems we lose some of the simplicity and ease of use for the original use cases that we had for them so i, I think it's interesting to consider um, not just like what can we do but what should we do? What makes it a, a better experience? And if it's 20 years old and it still works, then great. You made a great product. Absolutely. You know, one of my mantras is if you understand what the application is supposed, is supposed to be doing and you've got enough experience with it, you shouldn't need a manual. So this form that I'm working on right now, I'm just about done and re ready to go out and have beta testing. And I want to put this thing in front of the people that are going to be using it and say, try it without giving them too much instruction. 
instructions because they know what this thing is supposed to be doing. It should be intuitive enough to, if I designed it right, that they can just sit down and go, yeah, this all makes sense. And then it's boom, 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 boom. So how do you think your job differs from kind of the day-to-day regular developer in a, you know, medium-sized company? Um, one thing I like about working in this kind of environment is I'm pretty much 40 hours a week. I probably work a little more than that because I don't really take much of a lunch. I usually, you know, eat while I'm at my desk. And so I'm probably working a little more than that. Um, we have deadline flexibility, which is really nice because our deadlines aren't set by marketing. They're set by, you know, What's it going to take to get it done and done the way that we want it to be done? Um, so there's there's rarely a fixed deadline or something that I've got to work on. Um, it's not always that case. You know, sometimes it might be that I have to have something done by the next one a semester is going to start or some event. But for the most case, I've got some flexibility there. Um, I've got really nice job security, so I don't really have to worry about okay, this university is going to go bankrupt, it's going to close, it's going to do anything like that. I know that the university is going to be around much longer than I'm going to need to work here. So I've got that, and that's nice. Um, one thing people wouldn't know is that summers aren't slow for IT people working at universities. Mm-hmm. Summers are actually, they're much, much more busy because most of the students are gone then. So you're not worried so much about being as disruptive with something you might do. So there's still students that are around in in taking summer classes, but it's, you know, a tenth of what would be around here during the normal nine months. So summers are usually a pretty busy time. I'm not sure if I know what else to ask. Um, some other differences would be with, uh, with career advancement. Mm -hmm. Now, because I'm actually a state employee, my advancement is, is kind of along the, um, policies that are set by the state. You know, if I'm working here for a number of years, I can't just walk into my boss's office and say, Hey, I think I've proved myself. I want to raise. A lot of it is come from state budgets. So it's on an annual basis that you might get a raise, and that might be determined by the state allocation. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of years where, you know, in a downturn, states aren't weren't getting much money. So there was probably three or four years that there were no raises, but I knew out in the private industry that they were going, you know, five, 10% gains per year just because of the way the market is so it there's some good things about working in an organization like this but then there are also some some, some trade-offs there so how do you get into working at a university or some other public institution i mean it seems like partially you just apply for the job like any other job but are, are, are there certain ways in if somebody's thinking oh well that sounds like kind of the, the kind of stability I want and I'm willing to take those trade-offs. 
Yeah, it's definitely an interview process. You know, it's a formal system that we've got to go through human resources to make sure that we're complying with all the, the hiring laws out there with equal opportunities and and all the different cases that, that can apply to those. And it's is strictly just uh, applying to something that's posted on typically the university or the organization's website. We do do some advertising um, in IT um, publications and things like that, Craigslist, whatever, when we're looking for a position. But I found over the last 20 years, most of the ones that we found have been straight through our website. So people are interested. They need to, to look at that um, straight in the website. And then it's just a straightforward interview process. So who would be a good fit and who wouldn't be a good fit then to work in a public institution like state government or um, a university? I think the good fit are people that are probably less risk adverse. Or, or, so somebody that just wants to know that they're going to go to this job and they, it's going to be there tomorrow. They don't have to worry about, you know, getting a call into the office you know, unexpectedly because, hey, we're not hitting our our uh, sales expectations for this quarter. So we've got to cut staff. Mm-hmm. Or if you're in a startup, you know, there's a lot of risk there. Some people really enjoy that kind of a fast pace, you know, excitement about, hey, I'm making something that's nobody's ever seen before. And I've, I'm working at this small little company that, that's moving really, really fast. And that's that's me. That's my personality. I like to do that. And I'm willing to take the risk. But for me, as I've worked longer and longer in this area, I've got to think about, okay, what's going to be retirement? You know, I've still got quite a ways away, but I, I still think about that. And I like that stability knowing, hey, I do my job well, and I like the people that I work with, and that's for me. That's that's what I like. There's always this kind of little bird, you know, somebody on my shoulder saying, hey, maybe you should try that. But it's like, <laughs> I'd rather know that I've got a job for the next five or 10 years rather than five or 10 months. Yeah. So, um, Anything else anyone else wants to ask? All right. Well, thanks for coming and kind of giving us this snapshot into what it's like to work at a public institution. Um, I, I think a lot of times we just kind of take for granted that all the programmers out there are kind of doing what we're doing. And uh, yeah, it's it's a little bit different uh, way of looking at things. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, when you're not looking at what's the profit motive. So you can really look at how is this going to make an impact? And I, I like that. You know, I want to make an impact. Yep. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. 
Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you, and on Hired you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what, what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you sign up today using the show's link, that's Hired.com slash RubyRogues, you can get double the normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at Hired.com slash RubyRogues. I like that. I want to make an impact. Yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do picks. Um, Amy, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I have one. Uh, I think this was something else I saw on Hacker News. I haven't looked at it myself, but it seems like something that people would be interested in, especially newer programmers. Uh, But it's interview algorithm questions in JavaScript, and it's just a uh, GitHub account or a GitHub repository. So I'll put a link in the show notes for that. And I think that's going to be it for me today. All right, AJ, what are your picks? Uh, so last week I picked Breath of the Wild. And this week I'm going to pick the Nintendo Switch itself. Because it's kind of complicated in terms of the physical design and the parts and the pieces and the function, what they're trying to accomplish um, a console that is a screen that plugs into a screen that has controllers on the side, the controllers come off the side, the controllers go into other dongles, um, the number of buttons on the controllers, the way that they can be held. Um, there, there's just a lot of choices that they made in the design of the product from functionality, look and feel, modularity. And I think they did a really good job. Unlike the Wii U, the menu system is very simple to go through. It's very quick. And the user experience of every aspect of the product is just really great. And I don't have any USB-C cables, but I found out that it actually charges over USB-C. That's the little port at the bottom. And so I'm getting a USB cable so that I can just carry a cable in my pocket that will plug into the same plug that my iPhone plugs into and I can charge it that way. So I just think that Nintendo has created a modern model with that. And I hope that other companies will take a look at it. Well, they're always doing interesting things. Sometimes it fails miserably and sometimes it's a huge success. They're always doing interesting things. And this is an interesting thing that really works. And I hope other companies kind of take some of that perspective and, and apply it in their design of physical things that have complex goals and roles because um, it's just really cool. All right. Oh, that's all I got to pick. Nice. I'm going to jump in with a few picks. Um, the first one is is that um, I recently switched my machine over to Windows. And uh, so, you know, I'm running this over Skype. 
um, you know, doing some stuff. Um, there, there, there's some things I like and some things I don't. Um, one of the things that's kind of cool but a little bit glitchy is um, you actually get Bash on uh, Windows. Now it's a, it's an Ubuntu emulator and uh, it's running um, like three versions back of um, Ubuntu, which means that if you do like an app get install Node.js, you get version 0.10 instead of version 6. whatever, which is the um, most recent stable long-term support version. So that's kind of weird, but I did find that there is, um, and I forgot what it's called, but it's Node. I'll find it. Um, but yeah, it's it's a Node repository that basically you can uh, add to your Ubuntu and then you can get the latest version. And that's been pretty darn nice. Um, so now I'm running, you know, a reasonably recent version of Node on my uh, Ubuntu Bash and uh, making that work. Um, I also found a framework out there um, because I've been playing with AWS Lambdas, which is way fun and, and kind of challenging in a new way. Um, and there's a framework out there called Serverless that uh, helps you build and deploy um, systems to AWS Lambda. And so I've, I've just barely scratched the surface with it, but it's pretty interesting. So I'll probably see if we can get somebody from that framework to come on and talk to us on the show. But uh, yeah, uh, cool stuff. Sean, do you have some picks for us? I came prepared. Yes, I do. So with the upcoming King Arthur movie, I remembered a book that I read a number of years ago. It was called The Once and Future King. It's a good one. So it's by T.H. White. I don't know if anybody read that before. But it's a really nice book about King Arthur and Merlin and how Merlin lives backwards in time. So that was really kind of interesting. So he actually goes ages younger as time goes on for most of us. So it was kind of an interesting thing about um, that book. So I'll pick that. Um, I'll also pick Angular 4. I think that's going to be out uh, according to the timeline tomorrow. It's supposed to be the, as this is recorded. Should be out tomorrow as the official release. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also going to pick ReSharper. So I saw on the latest version of ReSharper, they actually have Angular 2 um, component attribute completion. So as you're typing in your template, it will actually autocomplete um, the attributes for your components for you. So you, you don't have to look those into your your TypeScript code, you'll see that right in your template. So I thought that was really, really uh, useful. All right. Well, if people want to reach out to you and find out more about what you do or, you know, how to be a developer at one of these uh, public institutions somewhere, um, is there a good place for people to do that? Yeah, they can reach me on GitHub at Claybow, C-L-A-B-O-U-G-H. Um, or they can find me at uh, Twitter, and it's Ulfius66, U-L-F-I-U-S-66. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming. Yeah. Nice to meet everybody. Thank you. Yep. All right. Well, we'll catch everyone next week. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.